That's good, isn't it? I like seeing those guys up there. Listen, if you're uh, with us, we started a new series, a short series, I guess is why I, I, the easiest way to say it because I'm, I'm done this week. Um, we started it last week on this idea, who are you? And we're trying to answer a very fundamental question that I believe is something that we all want to know the answer to. And uh, Jessica reminded me of a story that just fits so well with what we've been talking about. Uh, this was years ago now, it seems odd to say that, but... Uh, and we had just come to Emmanuel, so this was at least 13, almost 14 years ago, and, um, and we were on a Wednesday night, uh, a pastor who was the pastor of the church there, Craig Jenkins, most of everybody here still remembers Craig and, uh, and his family, and Craig was, had asked us to come over, and it wasn't a view of a call, it wasn't a, it was really just, I want to hear you teach, and if you're good or not. And so there was a little bit of pressure on us to kind of come and smile and put our best foot forward and all that good stuff, and uh, and we, so we came over, and we were he'd already gone through the church and shown us around, and we kind of settled back in the office suite area, and it was getting time to go down to the student facility, and uh, and and we came out of the offices, and we're standing just right before you come down the ramp um, uh, and the doors to the gym, and and busting through the doors of the gym is Reed. And at this point, Reed is now, Reed's like a grown man. I don't know if any of you keep up with them or see them very often, but it's weird to see Ryan and Reed are like grown men. And Reed at this point had to be between four and six years old. And he comes, I mean, tearing out through the gym and he was mad. He was mad about something. I still to this day don't know what it was, but he was hot. And he looked at his dad the pastor of the church has said, Dad, are, are you the boss? And Craig just kind of looked at us and looked back at Reed and said, what do you mean? Can you, can you fire some children's church workers? Are you the boss here? <laughs> and the look on Craig Jenkins' face was so perfect. It was like this mixture of, of a little bit of frustration a little bit of, like, this is pretty funny, and a, and a little bit of, oh, this is embarrassing because this is a potential staff member who now my kid is asking if I can fire volunteers. Um, and in that moment, what I believe Reed was asking is, who, like, who are you? Are you a charge here or what, right? And so this is a question that we try to answer all the time. I don't remember even what Craig said because my eyes got super big, and I just looked at Jess, and we were just kind of like snickering, and Craig was, well, that was weird. And then we just kind of went on. And so it was just kind of the end of the conversation. But, but when we think about who we are and, and what makes us us, we began to kind of dive into that last week. And I gave you some uh, statistics last week just because I like those things. I think sometimes they're funny. But it all boils down to this idea that we all want to be somebody, right? That's the, that's the, the phrase that kind of catches everything in this whole topic is that we all want to be Somebody, and last week I gave you statistics about uh, younger kids wanting to be something. So here's some, here's some more because I think these things are, are interesting. 0.6%, 0.6% of high school baseball players get to play in the major leagues. 0.6%. I think these stats are on the screen. 0.08% of all high school football players play professional on any level. That, that includes the Canadian Football League, if anybody ever wants to really play for them. But 0.08% of high school football players. 0.03% of high school basketball players play professionally. And then for you weirdos who like soccer, 0.04% of soccer. I don't know anything about soccer, but it was on the statistics sheet, so I put it on there. They play professionally. Very, very few people 
Like if you ask any kid, what are you going to do? I'm going to play in the NFL. I'm going to play in the NBA. I'm going to play for the MLB. I'm going to, I'm going to be a professional whatever player. But very, very, very few of us ever get to be famous by doing that. And listen, some, some of you have your team, and I get it, and you can name every player from every year of every, you know, whatever. You can, you can go back to the 1964 Cardinals lineup and tell me who they were. But even the majority of those players aren't necessarily famous. They may be on the team. They may be... And maybe getting a check, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're famous. And then I thought, okay, well, what about the whole other opposite end of that? Because not everybody plays sports. What about actors? Actors who are famous. And, and I, I had to narrow this down because there's just so many, like, quote-unquote, actors out there, right? And so I have it in this. The 1.4 billion English-speaking actors. So we're going to take all the people who are famous from a different country out of this. We're going to take all the people who are famous who don't even speak our language that we wouldn't even know that they were famous anyway out of the equation. 1.4 billion English-speaking actors. 0.04% are considered famous. 0.04%. So your chances of being known by even being an actor Everybody thinks, well, if I get on TV or I get on a movie or if I get famous on YouTube, we talked a little bit about that last week, right? If I get famous in some area, everybody will know who I am. 0.04% are considered famous. And so I just, because I like to know this stuff, the average salary of one of these actors, 1.4 billion English speaking actors, because we think, man, if we can get famous, we're going to make a whole lot of money. The average salary is $17.49 an hour. $17.49 $17.49 an hour. Now, if you're, some of us, that's a lot of money. But some of you are going, that's it? Like, that's the average. That's taking all the people who make millions and millions and millions for their movies, and then all the people who are like the extra, the guy in the background drinking coffee in the, in the, in the scene of the coffee shop, right? That's taking all their salaries. $17.49 an hour is average pay. So, I want to say to you, if you work a 40-hour job and you make a little bit more than uh, $45,000 a year, then congratulations, you make more than the majority of all the actors that are on TV and on and the movies. And so you should feel better about yourself. You should walk home going, man, I am awesome. I am so famous in my own right. Because here's the deal. We, we are trying to figure out who we are because we all want to be somebody. And, and last week we talked about who we are, and the Bible says very clearly in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors of Christ. Y'all remember that? And that we are His representatives, we're His mouthpiece. We are who he, what we say should be what God would say. How we act should be how God would act, and, and all those good things. And we ended by this statement of saying that you are who you are because of he, who He is. You are who you are because He is who He is. And so the natural next question that we have to answer this morning is, who is God? Who is God? And I talked to somebody this week and said, this is an incredible question to try to answer within 30 to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning because there's no way that we can really all the way and adequately go all the way through this idea of who is God. If you do some study in Scripture, you're going to see all these different names of God and all these different names of God are really still just talking about God, but they, they draw out different characteristics of God, maybe parts of his personality or parts of his, of his character or who he really is. So some of these you're a little familiar with. I've got some on the board. Hit that button. Elohim, right? We've heard that word before. Elohim just means strong creator God. If you read in Genesis, uh, when it says the Lord in Genesis, it's, it, the, that word in the original language is Elohim. 
Jehovah, right? We've heard that word before. That just means Lord and Master. Adonai, Master of all. El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God, which is kind of an odd way to say that, but it's just meaning that He's the God here at the house of God. And so I could, I could go on and on. There's, there's hundreds of these names for God, and I could impress maybe like three of you uh, with my Hebrew enunciations through those words, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't really tell us who He is. It tells us about who He is, and it tells us some of the characteristics of who He is. But to answer the question, who is He, we have to go a little bit deeper than that. One of my uh, seminary professors said this, and I put it, the quote on the screen just because I think this is the most powerful thing that I've heard in a very long time. I've even said it in here before. Uh, it says this, The most important thought that you think is what you think of when you think of God. I'm going to say that again because some of y'all didn't catch it. The most important thought that you think is what you think of when you think of God. And so when we picture Him, and when we think about Him, those are the most important thoughts that we have. Some of us have this very distorted view of God, like this King Triton off of The Little Mermaid, right? Remember the dad who had this big white beard and no shirt and this trident in his hand, and, and he's just out to try to, to zap everybody with the lightning bolts out of his... That's not, that's not who he is. What do you think of when you think of God? Because whatever that is defines really who you are and how you see Him. And so we're going to work through this idea of how can we do this. Isaiah, if you've got your Bible, let's turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah 40 today. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I don't have the Scripture on the screen because we're going to work our way through a lot of Scripture in Isaiah 40. And I started putting it all on there and it just looked like it was too jumbled. And so I want you to be in your Word today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you, don't have a, if you want an electronic version, I don't care. Whatever you use, uh, Bible, uh, phone, iPad, whatever, grab your, grab your stuff and let's look in Isaiah chapter 40. I believe Isaiah tries to give the best description of this. It's not a perfect description of who God is because I don't know if there is a perfect description of who God is. But this is the one that God led me to today, and I've got a microphone, and so that's what we're going to talk about, okay? And so Isaiah chapter 40 gives us a little bit of understanding, but let's get some context, okay? We've got to understand what's going on around this so that we can understand what's happening when we begin to read. So if you read verses, or if you read chapters 36 through 39 in Isaiah, they are almost word for word. There's a little bit of difference, but you can get the same concept of what's happening in 2 Kings chapter 18 through chapter 20. And you go, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's what's happening in 2 Kings 18 through 20 and what's happening in Isaiah 36 through 39. We are in the middle of what's called the Sennacherib crisis. And I know that's a big fancy word, but just hang with me, okay? Sennacherib is a king. And you guys know that, that, the, that the, the nation of Israel has been divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, right? We know that through history. We know that through our scripture, right? And so the, the, the Assyrian king at this point now is this guy named Sennacherib. And he is not satisfied with just owning and occupying the northern kingdom. He wants to go to the southern kingdom of Judah. He wants to go take over the capital city of Jerusalem. Because everybody knows if you own Jerusalem, you own all of the Hebrews. You own all of what we would call now the Jews, okay? And so 
Sennacherib, who has been living in the north for a little while, begins to make his way south. And he actually enters into the southern kingdom. He takes a few of those cities, kind of bulldozes them. His army comes in, takes over, and they just sack the city. And they're marching their way from the northern kingdom to Jerusalem because he's trying to get to the capital city. If you know your geography, it's, it's, it's not far. And so they, he takes out a few cities and he gets down to Jerusalem and he's finally surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib does something that's very ingenious. He begins to taunt the people inside the city. Now at this time, the king of Judah, the king of the Jews, the king, uh, his name is Hezekiah. And he lives in Jerusalem, obviously, because that's the capital city. And Sennacherib surrounds the city and he, he begins to taunt them saying, Hey, Hezekiah could not keep you safe. He couldn't keep these other towns safe. And he starts listing off these other towns that he's already kind of worked his way through. If he couldn't protect those people, he can't protect you either. This is, this is psychological warfare, right? In its very crudest form. And so he has this whole army surrounding Jerusalem, which is not a very big town when you think about it in this time. And he's taunting the people in Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem are scared to death. They're like, this is it. This is going to be, this is the end of our story. Here they are. They've already taken over the north, and we know now they're coming down for us. We, we're, we're goners until Isaiah shows up. Isaiah, God's prophet, comes to Jerusalem, and he comes into Hezekiah, and he's like, listen, Hezekiah, don't worry. Just calm down. Because we've got somebody on our side that they don't have on their side. And oh yeah, his name is God. And so just, just take a deep breath. Don't, don't let your emotions get out of control because tonight something incredible is going to happen. And so they said, the Bible says that that, that that night that an angel of the Lord goes through the camp of the Assyrians and puts to death 185,000 men. They wake up the next morning the Assyrians who are still left wake up and they see all these dead people who are in their army and they just lose their mind. They, like, they get completely scared to death. And the Bible says, as a matter of fact, I wanted to read it because it's interesting. Sennacherib broke camp, withdrew, and returned to Nineveh and, and stayed there. Like He's like, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know what happened. All these people just died. I woke up and everybody's dead and I'm gone. And he takes off. And he goes back to Nineveh, which is their capital city, and that you guys know that town, and there's all kinds of implications there we won't get into. But he goes back to Nineveh, and he stayed there. Like he's like, I'm never coming back to this town again. I'm never going back to the southern kingdom again. I'm out. And Isaiah is now left to try to, try to communicate why all this has happened. And so if you read 2 Kings 18 through 20, you're going to get that. But if you also read the previous three chapters of Isaiah, you're going to get this. And so we start Isaiah chapter 40 with Isaiah looking at everybody saying, Comfort, comfort. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort. He's saying, guys, everybody calm down. We're safe. It's all okay. God is on our side. We have, we've made it through the night. The king and the army have, have left, and we are still here, right? Take a deep breath. Verse 6, you jump down to that, it says this. A voice says, this is like God saying, cry out. And Isaiah says, what, what shall I cry? What, what can I say? How can I put into context what has just happened and describe to these people who you are? 
How can I adequately tell them how incredible you are, God? And then it goes on to say this. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is really incredible, okay? The, the actual translation of that, that very first line is, all flesh is grass. Meaning, meaning this, and y'all, listen, y'all just thought I was smart. I'm about to prove it to you, okay? Isaiah is saying, to understand who God is, we have to first understand who we are. Isn't that what we just talked about last week? He must have learned that from me. He watched it online. Uh, Isaiah says, all men are grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. What does grass do? What's grass supposed to do? Grow, right? It's supposed to grow, especially when it's watered and it's fed and it's nourished. All men are grass. And listen, spiritual implications are supposed to be drawn. These lines should be connected in your brain that we are supposed to grow. But the only way we can really grow is when we are fed and nourished and watered and and we're taking care of ourselves spiritually. We're going to grow in who God has for us. And all of our accomplishments, our glory, our look what I did moments, they are like flowers of the field. And now here's what I don't want you to miss. God sees those. And He sees those as beautiful. He sees those as incredible. When uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about when I went to Africa. But when I went to Africa, we had a layover in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is in the middle of Holland. Holland is the largest flower exporter in the world. Okay? And so most of us think about Holland. We think about the little wooden shoes, right? But, but everywhere in Holland, if, when you're flying over, you just look out your airplane window, and there's just fields of flowers, and it's beautiful. I mean, there'll just be a big, huge, like 40-acre uh, spot of like red flowers. And then another one right next to it of yellow flowers. And the next one right next to it of white flowers because they're just growing flowers. And God says here that, that your glory is like the flowers of the field, which means that, that all of the stuff that we accomplish are beautiful to God. That business that you started, it's beautiful. God. Your integrity that you walk with is beautiful to God. The way you raised your kids are like daisies, right? The, the, the relationship that you have with your wife is, is, should be roses. Uh, the way that you, you handle yourselves in, in, in maybe awkward positions or business positions or places where people are attacking you and you rise above that are like Hydrangeas. I don't know any more flowers, so I can't have any other examples. But all those things are like flowers to God. They are beautiful. God says that's, that's something to be proud of. But then he says right behind it that the grass withers and the flowers fall. And we read that verse the first time maybe and go, oh, okay, whatever. But now that we realize that we're the grass and that all the good stuff that we do are the flowers, it's a little bit... Harder hitting, right? That we wither and all of our good stuff kind of just goes away because that's the natural cycle of grass, right? 
That's the natural cycle of our lives. Listen, we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. All the stuff that we accumulated, all the things that we poured ourselves into, all the good things that we've done will eventually fall. But, says the Word of God, stands forever. And so it's a good reminder for us that all the things that we build, all the things that we do, all the things that we think are the most important things about us, God says, those are like flowers. Those are incredible. But they're eventually going to go away. Nothing lasts forever except the Word of God. Now remember what the Israelites living in Jerusalem had just witnessed. They had stared death in the face, right? Sennacherib is right outside their door. And many of them are thinking, is this, could this be it? Is this the end of our story? And Isaiah comes now and says, listen, everybody calm down. Listen, it one day will be the end of your story. The one day it will be it because all of us are grass and grass withers. But the most important thing, the only thing that really lasts through all of this is the word of God, what he has done. Look at verse 9. Let's keep reading. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. And say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. He's basically looking at them saying, listen, don't be afraid of what God's done here. Stand up and shout, God is good. Look what all God did. He saved us. He loves us. Look what He has done. And then verse 9 or 10 through 11, he goes on to say things about like his arm rules and his reward is with him and he watches over his flock. And then verse 12, he begins to answer the question of who is God? Listen, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? How can you understand someone that is so far beyond our understanding? This idea of no one being able to counsel God or no one be able to advise him or enlighten him or teach him is, is something that Paul echoes in the New Testament, okay? So put your finger in Isaiah chapter 40 and flip over to Romans chapter 11, okay? Romans chapter 11, this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, right? This is the fifth one in the New Testament. Romans eleven fifty three says this. This is Paul writing, says, Oh, the depths of the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he could repay him? He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Job. He's still wrestling with this idea of who is he? How can we describe Him? God is holy. He is, the, 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 the technical word is assay, A-S-E. He is assay, which means He needs absolutely nothing from us. They talk about the assayity of, of God. It means he, he needs nothing. We are the ones who need Him. 
We need wisdom. We need guidance. We need counsel. He is completely self-sufficient. He needs none of those things because He is all those things. And Isaiah here in chapter 40 is just saying, who, who, who can even begin to understand Him? Look at verse 18 back in Isaiah 40. Go back to where we were. Isaiah 40 continues. He goes on to say, Whom then will you compare God? What image will you liken to Him? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and the goldsmith overlays it with gold, and then fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that would not rot, and he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. This is, this is really important. Listen. Who will you compare God to? He's saying, listen, the, the, the craftsmen, they, the metal workers, they, they make and shape these things and they even overlay it with gold and they attach silver things to it. And they're saying, even that is not an accurate representation of God. And he goes, okay, if you're not rich enough to do that, then you get wood, right? And you carve wood and you try to make this idol that won't fall over, that won't, that won't be kind of, but even that is not right either. How can you, who can you compare God to? The, the statement that we use and things that we do is we say things like, God is like, right? Maybe you've heard that even out of my mouth. Maybe you've even heard that out of your own mouth. God's like this. He's kind of like our father. God is like, you know, this, the, you know, the man upstairs or God's, God is like whatever. Whatever you put in that blank behind the phrase God is like is wrong. Whether it's good or bad, it's completely wrong because God is unlike anything ever. God, God is not like anything. We can't say, well, God's like this. No, He's not. That's an inaccurate representation of who His God is. God is like this. No, He's not. That's not good enough. That's not, that's not a big enough representation of who God is. So I did an experiment because I, I like to do this occasionally and I think it's funny. I got on Google and I typed in, if y'all know, you got, if you have your suggested search thing turned on, uh, then you type in a few words and it gives you a bunch of options that you could fill that in with. And so I typed the words, God is like, and I just waited. And underneath the little search bar, this little window opened up and there was some pretty interesting, uh, what are those, uh, not similes, is that right? Simile or metaphors or whatever, the ones that use the word like, um, there's some pretty interesting suggestions. God is like the wind. God is like a mother hen, says Google. God is like the sun. Okay, maybe I can get there. God is like a rock. I'm not so sure about that one. God is like a lion. And I go, okay, there, that one at least is in the Bible, right? At least we can go back to the Lion of Judah, right? We can at least make those. My favorite one, God is like Wi-Fi. Not kidding. That was one of the options. I didn't click on that. I should have clicked on it just to see what came up and read the article. But the problem is we don't have adequate vocabulary to describe what God is like because He's unlike anything that we've ever experienced before. There's nothing that we can compare Him to. Listen, it's just like the book of Revelation. Many of you have gone through Revelation studies before. Maybe you even tried to venture off into reading it and it just didn't make sense. And so you stopped after like chapter five. Here's the thing. If you read through Revelation, John, who wrote Revelation, 
is, is afforded a vision of heaven. God allows John to see things that are to come. And he sees a lot of these end time things and these apocalyptic type things. And it gets a little odd for us who are reading it on this side of heaven because we don't quite understand what he's talking about. But over and over and over again, you see John trying to describe what he's seeing by saying the phrase, it looks like this, or it had a face like this, or it was shaped or fashioned like this, because he's seen things he has no idea how to explain, and he's just trying to grab any kind of context that he can to try to help describe what is ultimately undescribable. I know this firsthand. Because your pastor, at one point in his life, was young and dumb. And I know that may surprise a lot of you. But when I was young and dumb, I went to Africa. I told you I was going to tell you this story. And, and it was incredible. My brother-in-law and I went, the only two of us, uh, and we stayed over there for three weeks. 318 people gave their life to Jesus while we were there. It was an incredible event. I can never even hope to even duplicate that sort of uh, movement of God while we were there. When we were there we had the opportunity to speak to a Compassion International School. I don't know if you know what Compassion International is, but Jessica and I, for the last, gosh, 15 years of our marriage all, all together, have been sponsoring a Compassion child in Africa. Um, and, and Joyce is, we send a certain amount of money every month, and we can write letters back and forth, and we get pictures, and we find out how she's doing in school and all this kind of stuff. It's really kind of a neat thing, okay? And so these Compassion schools are set up through sponsorships from people who live in first world countries who can help, you know, provide for a specific kid and that helps provide food and medication and uh, education and uh, things for their family and clothing and whatever. So they said, we would love for you guys to come in and speak to this Compassion International School. We were like, great, let's do it. And so uh, I got there and, and of course, me being young and dumb, I was like, I mean, I'll, I'll speak. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. And we show up and there's this like 300 African kids in the school, and they're all in their purple uniforms because each school is colored differently for whatever reason. We were at the purple school, okay? And they, the girls come in their little skirts and their purple sweaters, and the boys come in their purple sweaters and their pants, and they just they all file in, and they're just so excited to see us because where we were, people had never seen white people before. And I was their only example of what a white person looked like. Me, at 6'3", listen, at that point in my life, I was 6'3", and about 140 pounds, I was 6'3", and my brother-in-law, 6'6", six, six, redheaded, big old, long, long, lanky dude. And here's these two, like, honkies in the middle of all these African kids who are, like, looking at us, like, because when we were there, there were people who would be ridges over who would yell at us, and they, we go, what are they yelling? They go, they think that you're a devil worshiper because your skin is bleached. They've never seen a white person before. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And so I show up to all these kids, and they're just like locked in on us, right? They are just so, and they can speak English because they're being taught English in their school. And so I get up to preach to these kids and tell them a little bit about who Jesus is. And in my story, I try to tell a story about an activity that I was highly involved in that was a part of my weekly, if not sometimes daily, life which was wakeboarding to a bunch of African kids who don't have no concept of what skiing or water skiing or tubing or wakeboarding would even be. And so I start telling the story about, yeah, I was wakeboarding, I was doing this, and I was trying to do a flip and all this kind of stuff, and they're all just kind of looking at me. And I went, 
you guys don't understand what this is. And then I made my second mistake. I tried to explain it. Well, there's a boat. You know what a boat is? Yeah, they all know what a boat is. Okay, it's got an engine on the back of it. And it goes really fast. And they're all just kind of looking at me. And there's a rope off the back of the boat. And I hang on to that rope. And they're like, why? Right? They just don't get it. And I'm like, well, there's this piece of wood that's strapped to my feet. And I can, I can ride on top of the water. And they're like, that's dumb. That's like how you die. And I'm like, I get it. But that's a part of what I do right now. And so they, they couldn't, they had no concept of being able to connect what wakeboarding was to the story that I was trying to tell. It's exactly like trying to describe God. How do you describe wakeboarding to African kids who never even seen an engine on the back of a boat, much less somebody trying to hang on to it? How do you begin to try to describe God with words that are inadequate to describe Him? And this is what Isaiah continues to go back to over and over and over again. There's no frame of reference. There's no ability for us to really wrap our minds around who God is. The Bible gives us one thought of who God is. It says God is spirit, right? The Bible says God is spirit. Now, we as humans put all the anthropomorphisms on top of that. We put in the, the arm of God, the eyes of God, the ear of God, the mouth of God. But, but the Bible says God's spirit. And we're just trying to describe him in ways that help us connect and understand him more. The finger of God. We use all these different anthropomorphisms, that's that word, to make human characteristics of something that's not human. And we're trying to describe something that we really can't. In our text, it says, whom can you compare to God? There, there is no one and no thing that we can compare to him. He's absolutely incomparable. Isaiah says, you try to make an idol, that's not enough. You try to carve a wooden image, that's not going to do it justice. Keep reading. This is, this is really, really good. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you since the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground and he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each one of them by name? Because of His great power and His mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God's asking us, who's my equal? I literally breathe stars into existence. And because of me, they're all there. Verse 27. Why then do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, quote, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. You ever felt like God doesn't care? You ever felt like you're kind of all alone? Things just don't mean to make sense, and that means that must equate to you that God doesn't care, and God's looking at us in this whole passage of Scripture. If you read it all at once, He's saying, after all that I do, with my abilities to literally measure out the heavens and to put the stars into place, how could you look at me and say that I don't care? I am intimately care about you. If we say that, it's almost like, it's almost like we're saying that our problems are too big for God as though he wouldn't understand what we're having to go through. And he goes, no, listen, if there's anybody that doesn't understand here, it's you. You don't understand me. I completely understand you. 
And then verse 28, this is the hook for the whole sermon. Listen to this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Underline that in your Bible. The everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Who is God? God is everlasting. This means, this means before me and you, He was. While me and you are here, He is. And when me and you are gone, He will be. It, it means that before, listen, before your problem, whatever it is, before your problem was, He was. Before, in the middle of your problem, He still is. And when your problem is over, He's still going to be. I don't, listen, before, let's get it real. Before you got cancer, God was. While you have cancer, God still is. And when your cancer is gone, God will still be. You understand that? When, before your prodigal child ran away, God was still God. While your prodigal child is still doing prodigal things, God still is. And when your prodigal child comes back home, He will still be. Before you lost your job, before you, 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 your world kind of crumbled, He was. When, when you're now searching and you're confused and you're scared and you're recovering from whatever it is that's happened, God still is. And when all that stuff kind of resolves and whenever you're on the backside of whatever it is that life throws at you, God still is. And listen, this one hits home because we all want to be known and we all want to be somebody and we all want to be kind of famous in our own world and we want to be known and we want to be people to know who we are. Before we were ever born, God was. And while we're here, God still is God. And, and then after we're gone, when our great, great, great grandkids don't even know our names, or anything about who we are because we think right now the world that we live in is so important and the things that we do are, are going to be everlasting, right? We think that, that they're going to be the things that are sustained and, and that are going to do and all these kind of stuff. And, and God says, they're the flowers and I'm going to blow on them and they're just not going to be there anymore. And, and when, when we are no more, God still is. And we, we get this so twisted and we think that somehow we are the ones that are going to last, that we are the ones that are going to be forever, that we are our legacy and who we are and the impact that we've made. It, listen, we are like grass and He is everlasting. The end of verse 28 says, He will not grow tired or weary. No one can understand it. And a matter of fact, verse 29, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, right? Hello, been there? Tired and weary? And young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Why? Because He gives us strength. He's the eternal that gives us strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. We can do all these things, not because we are able, but because He is able. Not because we don't wear out, because we wear out, but He doesn't wear out. He is everlasting. You might say, preach, that's all good and fine, but what does that have to do with me? Like what, what in the world does God being everlasting mean to me? Here's this. Because God is everlasting, we have an everlasting hope. That, that 
Y'all remember in, in creation account in Genesis, we go all the way back there in, in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about how God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. Y'all remember that? Okay. And so uh, chapter 2 gives a little bit more detail of, of what happened with that. And it says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We've, we've read that scripture before. And a lot of people want to talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. This is the Imago Dei, right? If you, if you do any kind of research on this, this is the image of what does it mean to be in the image of God? Does that mean that we look like God? Does that mean that we are, we are fashioned and put together like God? And there's a group of people that believe that. There's another group of people that believe that when, when God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam and that man became a living being, that the spirit... An eternal spirit was placed inside of man. And that is the image of God. That our bodies do not last, right? We all know that. Like if you're like me, I'm, in my, I'm officially in my 40s now, and I realize that my body is not going to last, right? When I was 19, 22, 25 years old, I thought I'm going to live forever because I'm young and I'm, I'm, I, well, I was never really strong, but I could do whatever I wanted to do. Now in my 40s, I'm realizing that I'm not going to last forever. And because our bodies wear out, they're not eternal. They're, they're made to, to decay. But our spirit, the part of us that is like God, is eternal. And because our spirits are eternal, we have to have an everlasting God that we can put our hope in. Because if our hope ends when we die, then that's it. That's, that's all of it. It all ends when we die. But because we are made everlasting our spirit is made everlasting we have to have an everlasting god so therefore we need a god who before us was during us is and after us will always be the hope that i have in my eternity is that god will always be that when my time on earth is done i know that my spirit will be forever with a god that is forever that's the hope that we have. That's the best definition that we can place on God is that He is an everlasting God. That above all things, that no matter what we do in this life, no matter what we accumulate, no matter all the little um, honor things and all the flowers that we plant in our field of glory, that when all that goes away, God is still everlasting and that we have this everlasting part of us that can put our hope in an everlasting part. Who are you is answered that I am who I am because He is who He is. And who He is is everlasting. Listen, church, a lot of us need to understand that on a very deep and personal level. That no matter what I'm going through right now, before that God was God, during that God is God. And when all that's resolved, God's still going to be God. Some of us need to do that with our own life, to understand that before I was here, while I'm here, and when I'm God, gone, God is still God. That, that no matter what I accomplish and what I accumulate, that at some point it's going to wither and it's going to be blown away. But what lasts for forever has to be lasting forever with a God that lasts for forever. He is an everlasting would you stand with me? TJ's going to come and he's going to sing. We're going to give you an opportunity to, to respond to who God is. To 
to maybe even place an everlasting commitment in His hand. Maybe even place an everlasting trust in His hand saying, God, you know what? I I know that I am nothing without You and I have to have You because You are everlasting. Listen, some of you just need to kind of get your stuff together. You need to start doing what you know you're supposed to do because what you do now has has an impact for now. And because God is still God right now, our lives should be revolving around who He is right now. Some of you just need to pray, and if you need to come to the altar and pray, you're welcome to do that. If you need to come talk about what it means to be a member of our church, you can come do that. This is your opportunity to respond to an everlasting God. Don't miss this opportunity. Hey, this is Matt Overall. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.